Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, hello. Uh, Today is a bit of a strange day full of mixed emotions as I record my final sermon to you as the teaching pastor at Christchurch London. I just want to say at the beginning, thank you to all of you who have been in touch uh, to encourage us and to say that you're praying for us in this new season where God is calling us on and we don't quite know what he's calling us on to. We really value and appreciate your prayers and we would love it if you would keep praying for us over these coming weeks. And to those of you for whom this is news and a shock, I'm very sorry about that. Um, Do check out the Christchurch YouTube channel channel and there's an interview there that Helen and I gave a few months ago explaining a bit about how God has been speaking to us and what this next season might look like for us. Uh, There is loads that I would love to say to you today um, but I have a sermon to preach and it's on a pretty big topic so let me just say two simple things. Uh, The first is this, thank you so much. Thank you for the privilege of being part of this community Thank you for the privilege of getting to lead and serve in this community. We've been here for 12 years and we love this church very much. And this feels like a huge shift for us, moving away from a city we love and a church that we love and people that we love. And we have learned so much and grown in so many ways. It has genuinely been such a privilege to lead and serve here. And so thank you. Uh, We will miss you a great deal. Whether we've known you for a short time or a long time, we will miss you a lot. And if you are watching online and we've never met, I probably won't miss you. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But if we had met, I'm sure I would miss you too. And I have got so much faith and excitement about what God may do through this church. And we will be watching on, maybe from a bit of a distance, but as eager fans, cheering you on, praying for you and looking forward to hearing all that God does through you. And I'm sure we'll be back to visit as well. So you can't get rid of us that easily. But the second thing I would like to say is this. This was not my choice of sermon for today. Uh, It's important to note that because at no point did I sit down and think, what would I like my parting message to be to Christchurch? If I could say one thing that summed up how I felt about this season of our lives here at this church, I know Romans 12, don't seek vengeance, but leave room for the wrath of God. That is not what has happened today. Rather, we are preaching our way through Romans chapter 12, and this is the penultimate week, and I am simply preaching the verses that I have been landed with, and they are some tricky verses. We're going to think today about how to respond when evil is done to us. You see, Romans 12 is all up to this point about how we live our Christian lives in community, loving one another as family together. 
But then there's a bit of a shift around verse 14 and then 17 to the end, where Paul stops talking about how we respond to those within the family. And then he starts talking about how we respond when people, perhaps from outside the church or people who don't love us as family, but actually intend us harm, how we respond when they do evil towards us. And Paul talks about enemies, he talks about vengeance, he talks about some quite difficult language and difficult ideas. And for some of us, verses like this can feel quite abstract. I certainly don't feel like I have a lot of enemies. I don't feel like people are regularly trying to do evil towards me. So for me, I can easily kind of gloss over this. But that's not been the case for many people or a lot of people at different points of history or at different points of the world. There are loads of people who experience injustice and evil on a daily basis, whether because of their faith or for other reasons. And it may be that you have experienced a lot more of what Paul is talking here than I do. So for what for me may feel like an abstract concept may be for you more of a living daily reality. And so I want to tease out what Paul says in this really difficult passage. And actually, we're going to spend two weeks looking at these verses because Paul talks about two different responses to evil here. He talks about how God responds to evil and how we are to respond to evil. And it's really important that we don't get those two things muddled up. Often I find that we are tempted to respond in ways that are actually only appropriate for God to respond in because we lack the full insight and wisdom and pure motives and character that God has. So Paul tells us that we are to act in a way that is appropriate for us whilst letting God be God and making room for him to act in a way that is only appropriate for him. And so we're going to look at those two aspects, how God responds to evil, how we respond to evil over these two weeks. Today, I'm going to think about how God responds. Next week, Joel is going to think about how we are to respond. And this will be a bit heavier than usual. One of the brilliant things about the Bible is that it doesn't dodge the difficult issues. Uh, But I want to acknowledge the fact that I won't be able to answer every question today. And so if I leave questions unanswered, hopefully Joel will pick them up next week when I am gone. We're going to look at three things today. The wrath of God, the justice of God and the gospel of God. And let's start with the wrath of God or for the Americans watching, the wrath of God. And this is not something we've spoken about a lot at Christchurch, but it is spoken about regularly in the Bible. And when I hear the word wrath or wrath, I often think that it sounds like quite an intense word. I sort of imagine that it's a really intense form of anger, almost as if you had this sort of spectrum, this scale, you'd have sort of being mildly peeved down here, right up to being angry and then wrathful, as, as far up the scale as you can possibly get. Like it's a really intense form of anger. But actually, that's not the way that the Bible tends to use the word. Wrath is really a synonym for anger. And our English translations often translate it anger in a whole number of passages, even in the New Testament. If you're interested, the Bible Project actually has a a, a series of podcasts on this, which are well worth checking out. I'm going to try and do in 20 minutes today what they do in six hours. So bear with me. But often, though not exclusively, um, or not 100% of the time, when the word translated wrath is used of humans, it's translated anger. When it's used of God, it's often translated wrath, which I think is unfortunate because it gives the impression that God is more intensely angry than humans. And I don't think that is the point. I want you to picture for a moment what someone looks like when they are angry. And if you can't quite picture that and you're with someone else in the room, maybe just like elbow them in the ribs or something and watch their face (laughs) uh, so you can get an idea. 
If you were to Google angry face, you would get a whole bunch of pictures which would have some fairly similar characteristics. People with kind of snarled noses or just red cheeks or red nose or, or red ears even or steam coming out of their ears. These are the kind of ways we depict anger. When someone gets angry, we might say that their blood is boiling. We use the kind of language of heat to describe anger. And these similar images and words were used of people in the ancient world. In the Old Testament, the word translated wrath means hot, and it is often coupled with another Hebrew word, which is translated anger, but literally means nose or nostrils. So coupled together, it paints the picture that when someone is angry, they get hot nostrils. And that word is used of human beings and of God. Now, why is that important? Well, one of the common descriptions of God in the Bible is that he is slow to anger, which traces back to Exodus 34, which then gets quoted again and again and again right through the Bible. He is slow to anger. But the Hebrew literally means he is long of nostrils. In her brilliant book, Bearing God's Name, Dr. Carmen Joy Imes expresses it like this. Imagine the inflamed nostrils of someone hot with anger, their faces red, they snort with outrage. Not so with Yahweh. His nose is long enough that the heat of his anger has time to cool before he acts rashly. I love that. I think that's quite an evocative image. See, there is a fundamental difference between us and God, which is that our noses are short, speaking for most of us, but with God, his nose is so long, metaphorically speaking, that when we get angry, when we get wrathful, it often results in impulsive, unrestrained, quick anger. When God gets angry, his nose is so long, he is so patient, that when he acts in wrath, it's not impulsive. It is measured. He's taken a long time to get there. A second thing to note is that wrath or anger is rarely a primary emotion. It's what people might call a secondary emotion. That is, beneath anger, there is often something that has prompted or provoked that anger. Psychologists often depict the anger iceberg. See, with an iceberg, you see what's at the tip, but there is a whole load of the iceberg that you don't see beneath the water. And when we see someone who's angry, we see the visual signs. We see the blood rushing to their nose. We see them turning red. What we don't see is the reason why that anger has been provoked. And when people experience or express anger, it could be because of a whole load of different emotions, whether that's shame, fear, rejection, discomfort, whatever. What we see as anger is usually a response to something more deep, more important. Someone may not be an inherently angry person, but they get, they get angry because of something that is precious to them. The same is true of God. It is very easy for us to imagine that God is an angry, wrathful being, as if that somehow sums up something about his core identity. And for many people, it's that picture of a wrathful God that puts them off Christianity entirely. But that's not how the Bible depicts him. The Bible often describes God as being love, compassionate, merciful, kind, gracious, faithful, forgiving. And so in the moments where he does act in anger, that is not a core part of who he is. Rather, wrath is in response to something else, namely what the Bible describes as sin. And sin takes on many forms, but I think it's probably fair to say that the sin that seems to anger God most is where humans reject him and his good purpose for their lives, and they actually act in selfish ways that cause others harm, when they act in unjust ways. And when God sees human sin and injustice, it provokes anger within him. 
And that anger is not sudden or knee-jerk or impulsive because he is long of nostrils. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Are you with me? Let me just say one more thing and then I'll bring it back to Romans chapter 12. Theologians make a distinction between two forms of God's wrath or his anger, what we might call his active and his passive wrath. There are moments where God actively intervenes to bring about justice or to stop injustice, moments where human evil has got so bad that God has no choice but to step in at that moment. But there are often times where God seems not to step in, but actually steps back. And these are moments that we might describe as passive wrath where God, rather than intervening directly, steps back and allows us to continue outworking our, our mistakes, our sinful actions, knowing that the consequences of those actions will actually be our downfall. And in those moments where God steps back, it is no less wrathful, but it is breaking God's heart as he is allowing us to bring upon ourselves the consequences of our actions, knowing it will be our undoing. And we see this idea of passive wrath running right through Romans. I mean, it's clearly there in Romans chapter one. Go back and read how Paul starts the letter. Romans six, Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. And I don't think he has here the idea of a God who actively intervenes to pay us our wages, because he actually also uses the language of reaping and sowing. So I think the idea that Paul has in mind is that if we keep sowing into a way of life that is sinful, that does harm to others, then we will be in a downward spiral which ends in death. We will reap the natural consequences of our actions. This is God's passive wrath. And we see both depicted in scripture, but I think if I can make a bit of a generalisation, I would say that now largely the way that God works is passively. He allows us, as his nose is burning slowly, he allows us to live according to the consequences of our actions, even though it grieves him to do that. But he longs for us to repent and to turn to him because the wages of sin is death. That's where our actions are taking us. But the gift he wants to give us, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But there will come a day that the Bible speaks of when, when God will intervene once and for all. It's described as the day of the Lord or the day of judgment, where God will step in once and for all to bring about an, an end to injustice and bring about eternal justice. And that's the second point that I want us to look at today, the idea of justice. Because when we hear the phrase, the wrath of God, it can conjure up ideas of wild, senseless violence, like he's just lashing out. That is not how the Bible presents it at all. Rather, here's my definition. The wrath of God is measured anger in response to injustice and directed towards the purpose of establishing justice. So let's look at the justice of God. In verse 19, which quotes Deuteronomy 32, God says, do not take revenge. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. The reason God tells us not to avenge evil is not because justice doesn't matter, but rather because it matters so much that he is committed to bringing it about. And this is good news, because I think deep down all of us long for cosmic justice. Vince Gilligan, who was the creator of Breaking Bad, which is essentially a show that depicts the downward spiral of passive wrath when someone is handed over to the consequences of their actions. Uh, he, he was asked in an interview what he made of God, and he said this, I find atheism just as hard to get my head around as fundamentalist Christianity. When asked to elaborate, he said, I was raised Catholic. I'm pretty much at this point agnostic. 
But I'd like to believe that there's more than just us in this universe. I can't prove it to be true, but I'd like to believe it, because the alternative is that all we're left with, with is that each man and woman has their own philosophies and their own code of ethics, and I don't see that there would be in that kind of universe any kind of unifying reason to be good. I've got to believe that there's some kind of karma, there's some kind of payback. I've got to believe the wheel turns for everybody who does truly horrible deeds. I've got to believe some cosmic wheel of justice on some huge and subtle and intricate level turns and it's complicated. <laughs> it is complicated. But in that sort of faltering way, I think he is getting at something really profound that all of us feel, whether we would articulate it like that or not. We long for justice at a gut level. We hate the idea that people who do atrocities would get away with them forever. So actually, we need a God of justice. We in the secular West tend not to think of God like this. We like the idea of a God of love who just sort of sits up there uh, being gentle and kind to everyone. But actually, if God didn't intervene in moments of injustice, he would not be a God of love. And the irony is that when people look at moments where God intervenes in judgment in the Bible, they often respond by saying, how barbaric, how could anyone worship a God like that? Actually, the opposite is true. If God did not intervene, if God did not care about justice enough to get angry when injustice occurs, he would not be a God worthy of our worship. Miroslav Volf puts it like this. A non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception and violence. So strange though it seems, I think the idea of a God who gets angry at injustice and who will not allow injustice to go unpunished is actually good news. Whether he punishes that injustice in this life or the next, we need a God who will deal in cosmic justice. And it's good news for two reasons. It's good news because justice will be done. And it's also good news because it means that we don't have to be the ones who do it. Paul says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul tells us explicitly not to do what God himself is committed to. Now hear me right, I am not saying that we should not care about injustice or we should ignore it or turn a blind eye to it, absolutely not. As fat followers of Jesus, we, we should and we must respond to injustice. We must call it out, we must stand up against it. But there is a right way of doing it and a wrong way of doing it. And actually Joel is going to talk a bit more about this next week. But what Paul says here is that we must not act as if we are God, because none of us is qualified to do that. Who of us, if we are honest, can claim that we have pure enough motives to be able to judge fairly and accurately between what is truly right and wrong? Who of us can claim to understand everything and know what is in people's hearts? Who of us is genuinely pure and impartial? And who of us is not also part of the problem at times? Who of us can say that we have never acted unjustly towards others? There have been so many times in my life where I have felt uh, like I, I've got angry at something because I've perceived that I was the victim of an injustice and I've got angry and the blood's rushed to my face and my nose has got hot and, and I've wanted to lash out. And there've been so many times where actually I've stepped back and I've cooled off and I've come back to the situation and only then do I realise actually I've got this wrong. Maybe there were some circumstances that I didn't understand or information I didn't have or I, I'd made judgments about someone else's motives that turned out not to be true. And if I had acted upon the anger that I felt so keenly, then my response would have been disproportionate and damaging. Imagine that on a cosmic scale. 
We are not meant to act in ways that only a good, perfect, pure God can act. I mean, think back over Romans 12. In so many ways, Paul says that we are not qualified to do this. We need to be renewed in our minds so we can think correctly, which presupposes the fact that our minds don't always think correctly. We mustn't think of ourselves too highly, but with sober judgment. We mustn't be proud or conceited, but must associate with people of lower position, all of which indicates that that is not what comes naturally to us as fallen, broken, sinful human beings. We humans make for poor judges. So it is good news to know that we have a good God who fights for the oppressed, who is deeply committed to justice and who has none of the failings or limitations we do. So God is a God of wrath and we need him to do that because his wrath is all about establishing justice. But how does he do that? Well, for that, we need to look at the gospel of God. The word gospel means good news. And the good news at the heart of the Christian faith is that in Jesus, God is dealing with all the problems of sin, injustice and evil and the consequence, which is death. In his final days before his execution at the hands of the Romans, Jesus knew that he was about to, to use Old Testament language, drink the cup of God's wrath. And that happened at the cross where Jesus experienced the wrath of God. He, the sinless one, experienced the wages of sin, which is death, though he didn't deserve it at all. Jesus experienced God's wrath in the place of humanity. But this is complicated, but, but stay with me. At the cross, I don't think that we're meant to imagine that at this moment, God is pouring out his wrath upon Jesus, but upon evil and injustice itself. So in his death, Jesus was standing in the place of every victim, every oppressed person, and he entered into their experience and experienced their suffering. The cross is the ultimate injustice because Paul says that human beings should not judge in a way that only God is able to judge. And yet here at the cross, God experiences what happens when sinful human beings judge. He was executed and tortured and put to death. The ultimate cosmic injustice. If you have been a victim of evil or injustice, you need to know that God is not indifferent to your experience. Rather, he has experienced it himself. Rachel Den Hollander, who is an American lawyer who particularly works with victims of abuse, has written a brilliant article on a Christian foundation for justice. There's loads I'd love to quote, but you should go and read the whole thing. Which she says this, It is at the cross where we see that sin and evil are no trivial thing. And when victims of injustice wonder if their suffering matters in the grand scheme of things or if it matters to God or if it matters to Christians, Christians should be able to answer with a resounding yes, pointing to the cross where God incarnate suffered and saying this is how much it matters. At the cross, Jesus, who is God himself, stood in the place of all who are oppressed and he suffered with them. And in some mysterious way, which is hard to get our heads around and hard to articulate, at the cross, Jesus was taking upon himself something that wasn't his, namely all the sin of the world, all the evil, all the injustice, all the brokenness and corruption. He took it into himself. And it's like he became so identified with it that in 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It's like he, it overtook him. He became somehow sin. It was like at the cross, God was gathering all the evil and injustice in the world to one place in the body of Jesus so he could pour out his wrath. And in that moment, it's not Jesus who is being judged. It is sin and evil and death gathered into his body and sin and evil are being judged in the body of Jesus. 
we often sing a song with this lyric, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that's true, and I'm happy to sing that lyric so long as we understand it correctly. Because if you sing that and hear that, and what comes to mind for you is a father who is just angry and unleashes his anger on an innocent son who has no say in the matter, that is not what is going on at the cross. And that's not what the authors of the song intended either. Rather, at the cross, as Fleming Rutledge puts it, the wrath of God falls upon God himself by God's own choice out of God's own love. What we see at the cross, the good news at the heart of the Christian faith, is a God of love who is deeply committed to justice and doing away with all the evil in the world. He is angry at injustice as a God of love should be, but his nose burns long. In love, he stepped into this world, taking on flesh. And at the cross, he bore the burden of injustice. He stood in our place. He drew all evil into himself and turned his own wrath upon himself. So yes, his wrath was satisfied so that justice could be done. But at a deeper, truer sense, his wrath was poured out in order that his love could be satisfied. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the amazing thing is that he didn't stay dead. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life. And Jesus himself was raised to that eternal life. Jesus overcame evil by allowing evil to overcome him. And then rising again from the dead, defeating the powers of sin, death and evil. And the Bible speaks of a day when Jesus will return and remove all evil from this world once and for all, making this world new. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof of that. In Acts 17, it says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that is Jesus. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So the invitation of the risen Jesus is for us to put our trust in him, to trust that he has dealt with all the problems of the world and all the ways that we have contributed to that, to confess to the ways that we have been part of the problem, and then to receive the gift of new life that he longs to offer us now and into eternity. The invitation he offers us is to trust him and to follow him, to become more like him and to trust in his plan, ultimately to put all wrongs right. This is good news. So how do we land a talk like this? Well, there is so much that I would love to say, so many things I haven't got to express today. Paul tells us not to avenge evil, but to leave room for the God of justice who is in the process through the cross, through the resurrection of putting the world to rights. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore injustice or just turn a blind eye to it, not at all. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we absolutely should and we must stand up against injustice. Following Jesus, I think, compels us to do that. But there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And Joel next week is going to talk about how we should respond to evil. But I do just want to say as we close, if you have suffered or if you are suffering evil and injustice at the hands of others right now, we want to support you. We want to help you to draw courage and strength and healing and freedom from God himself. One of the things we can do is we can talk and we can advise one another and we can pray. And so our pastoral support team would love to talk with you, pray with you and help you get any support that you need. Please do reach out to them or to a member of the prayer team. We'd love to pray and help you in that. But also, I just want to say, if you are watching this and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to appeal to you today. Would you put your trust in him? 
He is the one who can meet our deep longing for justice. Perhaps you've had an idea of God that has put you off, an idea that he is angry, that he probably doesn't like you very much. That is not the case at all. What we see in the Bible is a God of love who loved you enough that he went to the cross for you. And can I encourage you today to reach out to someone who is a follower of Jesus and ask them, what is it you find so compelling about this God? Can you tell me more about him? Or drop me an email. I would love to talk with you and pray with you and help you on this journey. But right now, I want to encourage all of us just to fix our eyes upon Jesus. We're going to sing a song that celebrates Jesus' work for justice and his plan to make all things new. And my prayer for us is that as we sing that, the God of comfort and justice would fill us with courage and a deep trust of him. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristChurchLondon.org.